It's time now for super psychologist, Dr. Mara Carpell and your golden years. Good evening and welcome to Dr. Mara Carpell and your golden years this evening and every Sunday evening at 5 p.m. Central Time and at 6 p.m. Eastern Time right here on blogtalkradio.com and on drmaracarpell.com. And today is Sunday, May the 21st, 2023, and I'm psychologist Dr. Mara Carpell, and we are back live from beautiful Austin, Texas, after a short hiatus so that I could go visit my mom in the Northeast. And we have another great program for you today. Art Mendoza of Accomplice Entertainment, producer of this program, is here with us to make the show run smoothly as usual, of course. And in a little while after the break, we'll be joined from right here in Austin, Texas, by Rosie Davis, the founder of the Yellow Heart Memorial. She's a COVID victim advocate and co-author of the book, Who We Lost. And we'll be discussing remembering those who we lost to COVID so that we can better heal. And then later in the program, now that I've started a family council at my mom's community and just returned from a visit to her community, I'll be talking about the ways that families can overcome the obstacle of ageism in long-term care um, while advocating for the care of our loved ones. And after the show, you can hear this evening's program again by going to my website and the link to the podcast will be posted later tonight with any other website links that we discuss on the program. And you can also hear the podcast in as soon as five minutes after the show ends by going directly to Blog Talk Radio, that's B-L-O-G, talkradio.com slash your golden years. And you'll also be able to hear the podcast five minutes after the program and forever (laughs) on Apple Podcasts. And for more, more information from this show and and to read the information, to get the website links that we discussed from all the prior programs um, since we've been on Blog Talk Radio going back 11 years, you can find that all at drmaricarpell.com, on blogtalkradio.com, slash your golden years, and on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to follow me on Facebook. Dr. Mara Carpell, Your Golden Years, for upcoming programs and events. This show is produced by Accomplice Entertainment and Psyched Up Productions and sponsored by AMightyGoodTime.com. Wondering what to do after you're 50 to reconnect with other people? How about having a mighty good time? It's free to search. Super psychologist, Dr. Uh-oh. Okay. <laughs> that was quick. Okay. Free to search, free to post, and much more, whether it's in in person or virtual. Anything can be found to fill your day with others. So be more active and start filling your days, connecting with other people. Go to amightygoodtime.com. That's amightygoodtime.com. All right. Well, we're going to take a brief break. Um, It'll be very brief, so don't go anywhere. Um, When we come back, we'll be here with Rosie Davis of the Yellow Heart Memorial. 
So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Super psychologist Dr. Mara Carpell will be back after words from our sponsors. Are you or a loved one a Medicare beneficiary? Help save you and Medicare money by stopping Medicare fraud. Fraud happens when Medicare is billed services or supplies you never received. There are three easy things you can do to prevent fraud. Review your Medicare claims for accuracy, protect your personal information, and look for any suspicious activity. For more information or to report fraud, call Medicare at 1-800-MEDICARE or call your local Medicare SHIP program at 1-800-252-9240. Please visit us on the web at www.drmaricarpel.com. All right, and we are back. Uh, if you're just joining us, this is Dr. Mara Carpell and your golden ears right here on blogtalkradio.com and on drmaricarpell.com. And now joining us from right here in Austin, Texas, We have Rosie Davis, the founder of the Yellow Heart Memorial. She's a COVID victim advocate and co-author of the book, Who We Lost. Welcome, Rosie. Hi, Dr. Carfell. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's such an honor. Well, thank you for being here. And I just want to mention for you and for the listeners, there's a very slight delay when we talk like this, so... If you don't know it's okay. there, it could throw us off. <laughs> so, so how are you this evening? Oh, I'm good. You know, just um, here at home, um, you know, our weather is, is a little crazy. It's, you know, sunny and then it rains. So, you know, just trying to relax on a Sunday. Um, you know, that's really it. Nothing, nothing too busy. Okay. All right. Well, you know, thank you so much for being on the program. Um, you know, we we had many um, guests on the program throughout COVID in the last three years talking about all of the stresses of the pandemic. Um, we had people come on and talk about grief and the effects of grief and how to heal but I think it's really, really important that we're actually talking specifically about um, COVID and the people that we lost or the people that are still struggling because of COVID. Because it, I don't know about you, but it kind of feels to me a little bit um, like an alternate universe that everybody took off their masks and now it's like as if nothing happened <laughs> after we went through all this stress. Um, do right. you feel that way? Like it's kind of weird? Yeah, you know, um, um, you know, unfortunately, um, you know, I lost my mother to COVID very early on, um, two months into the pandemic. And, um, you know, I think it, it's been really hard, especially living in a state um, of Texas, you know, the state that we live in. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that we've had states like ours, we've had to battle with um, more of the political stuff and, you know, the mask wearing and, you know, down to vaccines and everything that has been involved in the pandemic itself. 
So, mm-hmm. um, you know, every aspect of this has been a battle, especially in a in a red state like ours. Yeah, yeah. So it, it definitely makes it a lot harder um, to deal with the losses. And, you know, I'm so sorry about your mom. Um, maybe you can you can go back a little bit and you can tell us your story and what led you to found this group, the Yellow Heart Memorial. Yeah, so um, as I mentioned earlier, um, you know, I, um, I started paying attention when um, COVID was in China, and I actually worked, um, I'm a, a medical skin specialist, and so I was working for a dermatology office in the Dallas area, and um, I remember, you know, the nurses and doctors laughing about COVID and saying, you know, this is never going to come to the United States. And if I hear one more thing about COVID, oh, my God, you know, it was a constant joke. Like, this was an everyday thing while I was at work. Um, So Mm -hmm. COVID finally hit the United States like we predicted it would. Um, And at that time, me and my family were already prepared. We were starting to get prepared from the time we seen this in China. So we had already started, um, you know, purchasing um, cleaning supplies and, and stuff like that. Um, and so when the very first case of COVID walked into our hospital, it was an immediate shutdown. Um, they started furloughing everybody. And so I got furloughed. Um, you know, I was supposed to report back to work on May the 4th, um, and we had a case of COVID pop up in our house. And, you know, the CDC called and said, you know, um, you have a, COVID, a positive COVID case. You need, you and your whole family need to um, quarantine for 14 days. Um, and so I called my, my employer and I let them know that we had a positive case in my household. And um, they had a, a meeting amongst the doctors and the nurses, and they asked me not to come back to work. Um, they, my supervisor um, told me to file unemployment, and she would fill out all the paperwork. So um, to me, I feel like it, that was a blessing in disguise because two weeks later, um, um, we lost my mom to COVID. Um, my mm-hmm. mom was in a nursing home in Irving, Texas. Um, and, of course, the state of Texas did not have a mask mandate. And so, um, mm-hmm. you know, there was a shortage of PPE. Um, there was really not a protocol. You know, there was not really precautions being taken in the nursing home. When I would go and see my mom, and at this time nursing homes were shut completely down, I was only allowed to see my mom through a window, um, and I was very observant of what was going on. I constantly talked to this um, social worker, um, but the nurses were showing up to work with um, homemade masks. And um, Mm -hmm. on Mother's Day 2020, the last day that I seen my mom alive, they rolled her to the lobby window so that we could see her and give her, you know, we had, of course, leave gifts at the door. Um, my mom wasn't even wearing a mask. She she was wearing a mask, but it was underneath her chin and wrapped mm-hmm. around her ears. So mm-hmm. 
um, I was very scared for her and then seeing on the news how all of these nursing homes that were already on lockdown were losing residents at a rapid rate in Washington State. Um, so, right. of course, that was my greatest fear. And um, I knew that something was off. My mom um, was just different that day. She was almost in a daze. Um, I'm the one who actually had to get my mom to a hospital because the nursing home um, refused to call um, 911 to get my mom to a hospital. Um, so I, hmm. I'm the one who called 911 and got her to a hospital. Um, and, of course, so early on, um, you know, my mom was admitted and to the COVID floor, um, even with having a negative um, COVID test. Um, but because they were, they said she was um, showing symptoms, um, they went ahead and they isolated her. Um, and my mom had a total of, um, well, she had three tests that came back negative and then the fourth one came back positive. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, um, there was no FaceTime with her. There was no, um, saying goodbye to my mom. They they um, promised us that we could see her once she was taken down to, um, you know, the morgue. And then we got a phone call, and they said, no, we can't let you come and see her. You know, we're, we're just, we don't know if she's still contagious. Um, you know, they tried to give my mom convalescent plasma, and, and she didn't make it to even get that either. Mm-hmm. Um but you know, just the tr- the triggers um, until this day is knowing that my mom. Um, when we finally found a crematory, because they told us that we could not bury my mom, we had to get her cremated um, mm-hmm. again for the fear that she was still contagious. Um, when we finally right. found a crematory. Um, they told me that uh, um, they would have to send the hazmat team to come and get my mom. So, you know, I felt like I was in a movie. I felt like, you know, this is stuff we watch on TV. Like, this can't be real. Um, Mm -hmm. And and so they finally came and got my mom from the hospital. Um, And I remember um, it took a whole month for them to cremate my mom. And every day that went by, I just wanted my mom. I wanted her ashes. If if that's all that I had left, then that's mm-hmm. what I wanted. And I remember calling every single day and asking them, where is my mom? Where is my mom? And, and the crematory just kept telling us that we are overwhelmed. Like we have so many um, people here and mm-hmm. we're waiting for the, the city of Dallas to sign off on all of this paperwork and so it was just I always refer to it as um, it was just chaos it was pure chaos um, you know so, and so, so what what made you decide to start a memorial well you know um, listening to the news every day and then being being one of those families that you see on the news, 
and all we all we heard this whole time was, oh, this is how many people died. This is how many people died. And then, you know, feeling how lonely it was with no one around us moving to COVID, um, you know, it was it was just a nightmare. And so mm-hmm. what I did was I thought to myself, I'm not going to let my mom um, – I'm not going to let her death be in vain. Um, I refuse mm-hmm. to do that. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, when I joined the community, um, when I found community, it was very little. There was like one group um, from the United States, and um, there was a group from the U.K. Um, and that's where I was first introduced to, um, I found out about, the symbol of um, COVID that they were trying to start a symbol for COVID and that was the yellow heart, which was in the UK. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's when I first learned about it. But then I was like, you know, I think it's wonderful, but people are still not going to know my mom's name. They're still not going to know that she's a person and that, you know, she meant so much. Like, you know, they're only going to know the surface and that's that I lost someone to COVID. That's it. Um, so what I did was I did a memorial in my backyard, um, and and it got such a big response on Facebook, and so I wanted to bring it to a community level, and that's what I did. I reached out um, to um, a couple of people, um, you know, and they heard my story, and um, the city of Irving, um, the the parks um, and recs manager Scott Crossno. He said, I want to help you, and we'll do whatever it takes to help you. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's that's what we did. And so they gave me a wall, and I started um, putting hearts up and um, started writing names and all these hearts. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it just – the whole thing just exploded, and it was so unexpected. But um, we were only supposed to be there for two weeks and two weeks turned into two months um, because that's how big the response was. And so um, they, I mean, the the memorial just grew and grew. And then finally we had our closing ceremony and I had people reaching out and saying, how can we do this in our community? Like you have no idea what it means to see our loved one's name in a heart and being memorialized Mm -hmm. and being humanized. Um, and mm-hmm. so that's where it started. You know, I had to put my grief into action. And and it's now around the world, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> I um, I've worked with um, I've worked with um, other countries. Um, you know, I I started mailing out packages. I mailed one out to um, to Africa, to South Africa. I mailed one out, a couple actually, to the UK. Um, I've I've mailed them out several places, um, and you know I've also, in return, um, you know I've developed um, a relationship with the African Alliance, um, and and um, also their sister organization in the UK. Um, I've met people from Brazil. Um, I've met people from all over the world, mm-hmm. and Today, um, we actually have a global ambassador. Um, his name is Joseph. He actually lost his dad to COVID. And, um, you know, he lived in Thailand, and we we connected. 
and he said, you know, I want to do something. And so right now him and his wife, Sarah, are um, selling the world um, and spreading COVID awareness. And, you know, we have um, flags on the ship that have Yellow Heart Memorial, our logo on them. And so it's just, um, you know, something beautiful that came out of something mm-hmm. so tragic. Yeah, I mean, that's amazing. Congratulations on that. And, you know, I think um, there are two things that come to mind. One is when you said that, you know, you didn't want your mom's death to be in vain. I think that people who put their grief into action tend to heal better. There's better healing. And then the other part of it is um, remembering people all over the world and what do you think the benefits have been to you in in memorializing your mom and helping other people around the world to memorialize their loved ones um well the healing is um you know you we i always refer back to the spanish flu um and you know honestly until we lived through this pandemic as well. Like, um, I never really even looked into the Spanish flu, you know, and I started doing Mm -hmm. my research. And um, I said, you know, how sad is it that we lost just here in the United States, we lost 675,000 lives to the Spanish flu, you know, 50 million worldwide. And there's not one monument to commemorate that happening, you know? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. um, so to me, um, you know, we, Yellow Heart Memorial has had over a hundred temporary memorials um, all over the nation. Um, And now I'm working with cities um, across the nation to erect permanent memorials. So we've seen um, these permanent memorials going up and it is a lot of work, but it's worth it because we are leaving a legacy. We're leaving not only a legacy for our loved ones, but we're also letting future generations know what happened in this time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so to me, that's, that's healing, you know, that's healing. And it gives me that comfort to know that, you know, my mom's death um, is not, in vain and her mm-hmm. I've, I've done the work and I'm um, I've humanized um, you know mm-hmm. the lives that we've lost to COVID and and my mom's legacy is going to be left even when I'm gone you know um, I'm also a co-author for two books that have been released um, Voices 19 and um, Who We Lost and um, mm-hmm. we are waiting on the release um, for a documentary. Actually, we have two documentaries coming out. And so, um, you know, this is all um, stuff that is that is being documented and um, is going to be needed for future generations. Yeah. Um, you know, when I was thinking about this, after I learned about you and what you're doing and um, and now you keep you know, using the word humanize, I was thinking about um, how how divided and and really sick and angry our society is right now. 
both in this country and, you know, around the world, really. It's not just right here in this country. And I, I think, you know, obviously part of it is political division that has come up and a lot of things happened that coincided with COVID, um, mm-hmm. maybe because of COVID. I'm not sure. Um, but I wonder if some of that anger and and just that society sickness <laughs> um, is related to this desire by people to just sweep the grief under the rug and make believe that it didn't happen. Um, do you have any thoughts you know, about that? I do. Um, for my COVID community, um, we are dealing with um, COVID deaths are so, you know, they're just different from any other deaths. Um, you know, we have constant reminders. Um, and, you know, a big part of that is because it was politicized. And, mm-hmm. you know, our community keeps asking, when are we going to start our healing process? But then, you know, it all, there's always something, there's always that trigger. You know, you still have people that are still, um, you know, watching COVID deaths. So media is not covering it. We're not a hot topic anymore, but there's people that are still dying from COVID. There's people that are still contracting COVID, not at the, not at the rate that it was before, but it's still here and it's still Mm -hmm. taking lives, you know? Um, And I think that um, for instance, with, we're now starting to get triggered again because we see the political side of this and who's coming up to run again for president. And for a lot of us, that's, um, that's like um, just, you know, taking the Band-Aid off and, and putting mm-hmm. salt on our wounds, you know. So mm-hmm. when are we going to get to heal is the question. I mean, we have this big, huge um, you know, they're saying the pandemic is officially over, right? The PHE um, benefits, I, everything that was COVID-related is completely done. And we're like, what do you mean you're done? Like, there's so much more work to be done. You have our long haulers that need, um, mm-hmm. you know, they need medical resources. You have mm-hmm. us victims that need mental health resources because we mm-hmm. are traumatized. We're suffering from PTSD. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's so much work to be done, and it's like we're a community that has been forgotten about. You know, I think the the word that the that the medical community uses has have been taken out of context, and people run with it. So, you know, the pandemic is over because the criteria for a an illness to be called a pandemic no longer exists. That doesn't mean that the illness no longer exists. But people think, well, the pandemic's over, so that means COVID is over. Um, right. But they're I, not one and the same. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's exactly the way... Um, society is taking it, you know, and um, again, you know, we have media is no longer covering this, but, you know, from January, the very beginning of January to 
the first week of February, we lost 38,000 lives. That's a lot. Wow. That's um, a lot. And, and that that tells you that this 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 is still very much active. You know, I had a friend that I talked to a couple of weekends ago and um you know, her husband lost a coworker to COVID and mm-hmm. and you know, it's 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 that part. It's like people don't understand or they're not wanting to cuz so everyone's so fatigued. You know, we've been in this thing for three years, and everyone's so fatigued. They're tired of wearing the mask. They're tired of hearing about, oh, now we need another booster shot. And, you know, I get it, but at the same time, like, where where are the resources and where what are we supposed to do, community of um, victims? Um, and, and, again, the long haulers, you have COVID orphans. Um, that, mm-hmm. you know, other COVID organizations are now trying to fight for baby bonds for these orphans that have, um, you know, they're going to grow up with no parents because of COVID. So COVID's done a lot of damage. Whether you lost directly or not, every person in this world was affected by COVID in some way, shape, or form. Absolutely. Whether, you know, whether people got sick or lost someone or, they were economically affected, um, or they were completely isolated. You know, for a lot of people, that isolation has was very traumatic, right? If you were isolated and in, you in, by yourself um, for months and months, not knowing what was going to happen next, and the anxiety of watching it on the news and all of that, there's there's a lot of PTSD, <laughs> a lot. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. So, and and I really think that it's in, and I, well, I believe first of all that the the um, American Psychological Association will likely, when they revise our our diagnostic manual, that will there will probably be another category of PTSD due to COVID or due to the pandemic, however they they put it. Um, because I think it, it is almost like a separate disorder um, that people have developed an anxiety disorder um, from real trauma. Not that anything is wrong with, yeah. I don't know if you could say it's a disorder, it's a syndrome based on yeah. things that happen. Um, I have a question though. Are, are, do you think yeah. that are you working with Yellow Heart Memorial to actually like ask those questions of the people in government, like what, like getting resources or or how you know how do we get the resources for mental health? How do we get the financial resources for people who um, you know have lost their they're important, they're breadwinners, they're parents, that kind of thing. Are are you involved in that, or do you know of organizations yeah, that are so, doing that? Well, I know, um, I know, um, so one organization that is currently um, working to um, have the Baby Bonds Bill um, passed in each state is um, – um, COVID Survivors for Change, They um, California was the first to sign on, and now um, New York um, has signed on to that from the last that I know. 
Um, so they are um, trying to get this bill passed into each state for these orphan um, uh, COVID children, you know, and me, myself, um, you know, Yellow Heart Memorial, again, we started with temporary memorials and our focus now is shifting to just permanent uh, memorials. Um, you know, my mom passed away in Irving, Texas, and so this past week I took a tour and, and we, the city showed us four locations to pick to place that permanent memorial, and so that's um, something that's coming up very soon. Um, mm -hmm. I'm also... I also have a really good friend of mine that's in Washington State, and he's actually um, going to be um, one of the spokespersons for um, a mental health program, and um, we plan on partnering with him, and um, mm -hmm. the goal is to create a program for the COVID community to provide um, those mental health resources for us. Okay. Right. Yeah. Um, I've also advocated um, several times in D.C. I've, uh, you know, um, established um, a relationship with Joaquin Castro. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I've visited his office several times in D.C., and that was mainly to talk to him and other senators in Congress about a um, permanent, um, you know, a monument in, in D.C., to um, commemorate, um, you know, the lives that we've lost to COVID as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, those are really, you know, I think those are really all important things. And I, and I really I agree with you that even having a permanent memorial is really important for people to feel that they're not invisible. Their loss is shared with the community, you know. Absolutely. Um, um, mm -hmm. You think about places kind of like New York, and um, New York mm -hmm. was hit so bad that there were bodies that were never even, um, no one came forward to claim those people, you know. So there mm -hmm. are um, those people that um, were lost in the pandemic. And, yeah. um, you know, so those memorials, not only honor the lives that we know of, but the ones that we don't know um, of that mm -hmm. passed away from COVID. Right, right. You know, I'm from New York, so I know a lot of people there mm -hmm. and, um, who really are still in a state of trauma just from, the. you know, New York went through 9-11, and that was one day. And right. from what I was hearing when the when COVID was, you know, when it was the epicenter in New York, it was, they, you know, there were people saying that every, every day was like 9-11 all over again, over and over and over again. So, yeah. Um, I talked to a couple of um, people, you know, in the New York area, um, and, you know, one of them recall looking out her window and literally seeing people just drop in the street. Um, wow. You know, that were dying from COVID. And th this was in the Queens area. Um, mm -hmm. And so that alone, you know, aside from um, she's also a victim uh, or her grandfather was a victim, but um, that aside from losing someone is, you know, you that's hard to process. 
um, and and till this day, you know, my mom, we just um, had my mom's anniversary on the 17th, and it marked three years that my mom's been gone. Um, and mm-hmm. there's days that I wake up, and I still can't believe that I lost her in this way, um, you know. Right. And, and just the conversation that we, we had and, um, you know, those events, they play out over and over every time that it gets close to that, that anniversary, um, I relive those moments. Sure, sure. Well, I really hope that, you know, there is more, there are more resources that are given to this to help people to overcome this trauma because it's really, you know, it's widespread and you're certainly not the only one. And I'm, I'm glad that you found a community, though, because that helps as well. Um, so, so for listeners, um, how can they find out more about Yellow Heart Memorial and also about your book? And if they themselves are, you know, have lost a loved one to COVID or the long haulers, how can they um, contact you or be in touch with the Yellow Heart Memorial? Um, yeah, so um, on all of our platforms, um, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, um, they can find us at Yellow Heart Memorial. Um, my email is yellowheartmemorial at gmail.com. Um, our website is yellowheartmemorial.com. Um, but, you know, they they can um, tap into, we have a page and then we have a private group. Um, the private group, I'm very protective of that. I don't let people get in that are going to, you know, say ugly comments or be disrespectful mm-hmm. in any way. Our community has been through enough. And so it's, a non-political group we don't we don't allow politics into the group um it's just strictly um you know lifting each other up and and helping Uh each other get through the day is what that is and so if they're looking for a community they're definitely not alone um when i lost my mom like i said there was literally one group on facebook um that was a covid support um, and so now I'm really grateful that it's, um, you know, there's pioneers like myself that have created a space and have built community for people that are looking for community and people like them, um, or, you know, they're um, just looking for a safe space to, um, sure. you know, honor their loved one. So if they want to be in that private group, would they just contact you directly? Um, they can just go on um, Facebook and go to Yellow Heart Memorial, and they'll show they'll see our page when they enter um, request to to join the group. There are a couple of questions, you know, our rules for the group, um, just to make sure that you're going to be respectful and um, you know I'll be alerted that you've um, requested to join the group, and um, and then you know we let you in. So um, that's okay. really it. It's really simple. Okay. Okay, great. So I'm going to post all of that mm-hmm. on my web website post about this show So later tonight. So if listeners are interested they, and they didn't write it down, they can go and see that there and click on it. 
Um, and your books yeah. are ever, and your upcoming um, documentary, all of that's going to be on the on the website yellowheartmemorial.com. Yeah. So for um, Voices 19, um, I actually personalized that book for you, and so you can order it through yellowheartmemorial.com. Um, for who we lost, um, they can pub, um, they can buy that from Belt um, Publishing.com, and um, they'll see it on there, um, or they can find the link on Yellow Heart Memorial um, Facebook group. I posted it on there so that um, all of our community has an opportunity to purchase that book. Okay, great. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much, Rosie, for being on the program and for doing what you're doing. And I, you know, I, I wish you more healing. And I hope that this, you know, people can really benefit from what you're doing. Um, Absolutely. Sure. Thank you so much for, you know, inviting me um, to be part of the show. You know, any opportunity that we have to um, spread awareness. Um, and to give people the opportunity to find us, um, you know, it's always um, such an honor. And so I thank you for the invitation. Yeah. And let's stay in touch. Let me know, let me know when your documentary comes out because I'd like to see it and let people know about it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the first one, we're waiting. It should be released any day now. <laughs> so we're, um, okay. we're anxiously waiting. Um, but that first one is going to be um, hit the film festivals in Africa first. Um, and then the second one, um, I'm waiting to hear back. That one was actually done here from a, a student um, here in Texas. So um, I will okay. definitely up- update you. <laughs> great. Great. Thank you. All right. Yeah. Well, you have a very good evening and, um, and we'll be in touch. Absolutely. Thank you so much. All right. Okay. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. All right. We're going to take a quick break. Um, Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Dr. Mara's book, The Passionate Life, Creating Vitality and Joy at Any Age, is now available on Kindle and in paperback at Amazon. Don't forget to listen to Dr. Mara Carpell and your golden years live from Austin, Texas. Every Sunday on blogtalkradio.com. Please visit us on the web at www.drmaricarpel.com. All right, and we are back. If you're just joining us, this is Dr. Mara Carpell and your golden years right here on blogtalkradio.com and on drmaricarpell.com. And I want to spend a little while before... We finish up the show um, talking about, uh, so the last few shows I talked about starting a family council and advocating for your loved one. And I I wanted to put it together in a more concise way. Um, I was asked to speak this Tuesday. I'm going to speak with a, a national family council. And um, I was asked to speak about ageism and how ageism affects care in long-term care and health care and what families can do to um, help our loved ones get 
higher quality of care in spite of the ageism, so how to overcome that. And we talked a little bit about that on this program with some of my guests in the last few shows, talking about ageism and its effect on the nursing home. So I kind of put it together in a more concise way, and I'm going to start it this evening. Might not have time to finish it, so then I will continue it next show. Um, and as I mentioned, I just returned from a visit to see my mom. My mom is 94 years old, and she lives in a nursing home. She's in one of the nicest nursing homes I have ever seen. Um, I had worked in nursing homes for many years. That was my specialty when I got out of graduate school. My specialty in graduate school was geriatrics, and when I got out, that was my main job, working in nursing homes for many years around the New York metropolitan area, um, and then when I moved to Texas here in Austin, Texas, and then down by the border in the Rio Grande Valley of Texas. So I've seen all different kinds of nursing homes. And my mom is very lucky. She's in a very nice one. But nursing homes in general, long-term care, even hospital care for elderly people um, have a systemic ageism that is part uh, woven into the system. And ageism is really the one quote-unquote-ism that has not been addressed. We talk about racism, we talk about sexism, but people do not talk about ageism. And maybe that's because we all are kind of in a state of denial that we are one day going to be in that place, that we are going to be elderly, or that we might need the kind of care that someone receives when they when they end up in a nursing home or have somebody coming to their house, um, home care aide, that we kind of don't believe that'll be us. But we will get older. And as we get older, we will likely need more help. Um, and if we're lucky enough to live to be 94, we might need a lot more help. Um, one of the guests who was on this show, Irving Stackpole, talked about the development, the building of nursing homes that happened in the 70s. And um, he said, which I didn't know this, that nursing homes haven't really changed since they were first built. And, you know, long ago, people took care of their aging parents in, you know, houses with extended families or apartments with extended families, and that was that was natural. And I, and back at that time, we had a different view of older people. We actually looked up to our elders. We respected them. We revered them. And in some countries, people still revere their elders. But it seems as though uh, when younger when younger people have moved away because you know, jobs move away and we've become a much more mobile society and now have found these places to place our loved ones, there there has been a decrease with from generation to generation, I would say, where um, 
respecting our elders, looking up to our elders, revering them has kind of gone by the wayside. Um, And it's been replaced by an ageist view. So ageism, to define it for you, um, Dr. Robert Butler first published his article, Ageism, Another Form of Bigotry, and that was published in the Gerontologist, a, a very respected journal that still exists, and that was in December 1969 when that article was published. He was the one to coin the term ageism, and it was meant to describe the systemic discrimination against older people. And it's now over a half century later, and ageism remains, and it continues to hamper the abilities of older adults to live to their fullest potential and to have the highest quality of life outside of long-term care and especially in long-term care. And it diminishes their value and their worthiness to receive the best care and the best treatment. And it's, you know, I think that this topic coming after the discussion with Rosie about COVID is it kind of fits because um, a recent study was published um, in the Journal of American, of the American Geriatric Society in 2022 and found, it was found in that study that ageism in healthcare became much more overt and obvious during COVID. Um, that during the, pan, the height of the pandemic, um, it, as they said, it, exemplif- it was exemplified by pronouncements that older adults were universally frail that their contributions to society were minimal and that they did not deserve to be prioritized for COVID-19 related resources. Some even pronounced that older adults should be prepared to step aside and relinquish the limited healthcare resources to younger adults or to even just uh, uh, um, agree to die. Um, you know, I know Rosie brought that up in the state of Texas, that that was actually stated overtly that older adults should be ready to step aside and die to let the younger adults keep the economy open, get the health care resources, et cetera. Um, and then, you know, I'm not going to go into this. In, in this discussion, but this leads to another discussion about how in this study, the authors went on to discuss findings that the negative health act outcomes are magnified when you add racism, and when racism and ageism intersect. But I think if we just look at racism alone, there's plenty to talk about. Um, ageism runs rampant and it affects our healthcare system and affects long-term care for older adults, um, and it affects the where the money goes in terms of taking care of people. So, even in the state, my mom is in the state of Connecticut. Um, 
Connecticut has the fourth highest um, number of 85 and older people. That's the fourth large, fourth, the fourth highest nationally for people in that age group. And even in Connecticut, it has hit a political wall in terms of proposals to raise mandated hours for resident care. So meaning that having more staff uh, per per resident in a in a nursing home. Um, there's a severe shorting uh, staffing shortage around the country, and um, people the nursing homes are getting by with using the minimum number, and they are refusing to raise that minimum number. Um, even to provide air conditioning in every resident room in some of the nursing homes that are older, they don't have air conditioning in every room. And to boost the number of long-term care ombudsmen. Um, when I was up there, I found out that the ombudsman, who is a liaison that you would complain to if you have a problem, they would go to the nursing home to try to work things out. Um, I talked to the ombudsman for my mom, my mom's area, and she told me that she was covering three areas, that they have lost several ombudsmen and they're, they haven't rehired them. And now, according to this um, newspaper in Connecticut, they are not looking to raise the number of ombudsmen because they just don't want to put the money into it. Again. The older adults are being asked to step aside for younger adults or children. Even in a state where the school system is one of the highest in the country, they want to keep putting the money into the children rather than the older adults. <clears throat> so what, how does this affect the elders living in long-term care? So ageism causes the medical and the care providers to give up more easily on treatment for the elderly, much, much more easily, much more quickly. Um, they tend to just feel like it's their, you know, to say that it's time for them to go or not putting the money, that, that they're not worthy of that extra money that it goes in to treat them or the, the time that it goes in to treat them because they're already at an advanced age when there are elderly people who still, you know, not every elderly person is the same. Some are ready to, to end, for their life to end and they say, you know what, I've lived a long life and I've had enough. I don't want more pain. And there are other elderly people who say, I still have a lot of life left of me. I would like treatment so that to try to live a longer life. Um, ageism leads to the perception of treatment, therapy, or even mental health treatment as a waste of time and money, as I just mentioned. Um, ageism often causes providers, caregivers, and even family members to assume that a mild memory impairment means that the person has dementia when there are many other causes for memory issues, including depression, poor sleep, and other medical issues. So many of these causes are reversible, even in an older adult, 
but they can only be reversed if a if um, they're treated. So the onset of significant memory impairment should actually trigger an evaluation to see what the cause is without making an assumption that it has to do with their age, that they're quote unquote senile. Um, along these same lines, ageism often causes providers, caregivers, and family members to assume that a communication impairment um, means that the person has dementia. And this means that a person who is even, who is sharp, but it, unable to get their speech out clearly um, is there, nobody is attempting to understand what they're trying to say, what their needs are, and they're forgotten, they're pushed aside. They're considered to be, quote unquote, just demented. Um, and I will add that it's not appropriate to treat someone who does have dementia in that way, which is a, it's a very common response to ignore someone who's crying out for help, for example, um, assuming that they just scream because they have dementia rather than checking to see what the issue is. Even someone with dementia, when they cry out, it's usually, it usually means that they're in some sort of pain. And I'm going to mention one more thing before we end, and I will continue next week, along with solutions to this, things that families can do to help our loved ones in this system that has these biases. One more um, way that ageism affects long-term care is that there's an expectation that a resident in a, in a nursing home, for example, go along with what's most efficient for the institution rather than what, or rather than the institution providing more person-centered care, um, expressions of individuality. Those are seen as a problem when somebody is different, wants something, they prefer something different than the rote routine of the, of the facility. And this is detrimental to the person and their ability to continue to live to their highest quality of life and remain true to who they are. So I'm going to end there because we're out of time, but I'm going to continue with that. And I actually have written a blog uh, about this um, with the solutions included in the blog. So it's not just a hopeless um, poem about ageism. And that will be published probably during the week, this week. So keep your eyes open on my Facebook page, Dr. Mara Carpell, Your Golden Years, and I will be posting the link to the blog, which will also be on my website. All right. So we've come to the end of another program. Before we go, I'm going to let you know what's coming up next week. Sunday, May 28th, Brothers we'll be back live time. with another great live program on Memorial Day weekend. And we'll be joined once again by Jay Schneider, founder of Bridge to Shore Interventions, um, conducting addiction interventions nationally and internationally. And if you want to hear tonight's program again and read the information from the program, go to my website, drmaricarpel.com, 
and that'll be posted later tonight. You can also hear the podcast in about five minutes from now by going directly to Blog Talk Radio, B-L-O-G, talkradio.com slash your golden years, and you can listen on Apple Podcasts. This show was produced by Accomplice Entertainment and Psyched Up Productions and sponsored by AMightyGoodTime.com. Thank you to my guest, Rosie Davis, you art. Thank you all for listening. Have a peaceful night and inspiring week. And remember, youth has no age. Good night, everyone. Stay safe. Any guidance offered by Dr. Carpell is not intended to replace the advice of your own physician or mental health specialist. Neither Dr. Carpell, her sponsors, nor this station assumes responsibility for the misuse of any information on this program. 